you're about to hear a great conversation with Kenda Dean about the Pixar movie Up. Unfortunately, this episode of Technicolor Jesus has a few more pops and cracks in the recording than we like, even for our normally mediocre standards. We certainly apologize for the inconvenience. We think you'll enjoy the gist of it regardless. So, on with the show. Technicolor Jesus is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Adam, let's do it. This is Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Today, we are talking with Kenda Creasy Dean about the Pixar classic about adventure and the elderly, Up. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm a scholar, minister, and teacher living in Pennsylvania. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. We invite guests who pick movies for us to watch, and then we gather up for conversation from our perspective as pastors, as theologians, and as folks who just love movies. This week, our guest, Kenda Creasy-Dean, has asked us to go see Up, so we've done it. And in our first segment of the show, Justification by Faith, we ask what Up has to do with life and ministry, theology, and the world. And in our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we are going to offer up just some specific ideas for what you might do with Up for this coming lectionary Sunday, which will be Sunday, November 26th, the 25th Sunday of Ordinary Time, Reign of Christ Sunday. And finally, in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're reading, watching, or following. <laughs> but before we get too far down the line, I want to introduce our guest for this week, Kenda Creasy-Dean. Kenda is the Mary D. Sinnott Professor of Youth, Church, and Culture at Princeton Theological Seminary. She has authored numerous books, including Almost Christian and Practicing Passion. She's also one of the co-founders of Ministry Incubators, a consulting group dedicated to ministerial innovation and entrepreneurial ideas. Kenda, we are so glad to have you here. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. It's great to be here. So let's talk about Up. It's our first Pixar movie, Adam, which is Surprising to me, but it's, it's about time. It's part of Pixar's run at the very height of its powers. You've got 2007's Ratatouille, 2008's WALL-E, 2009's Up, and 2010's Toy Story 3. That's a ridiculous run with bad Cars movies on both sides of it. But, <laughs> but it, it also signifies Pixar turning from some of the really kind of kid-focused stories of its early days, like Bugs Life and Monsters, Inc., to stories that feel more grown-up in nature. And I think none of them more so than Up, which is a movie about a, a man named Carl who is in many ways in the last chapter of his life. After the death of his beloved wife, Ellie, Carl decides literally to fly his house in South, to South America in search of the adventure that he and Ellie had never quite managed to take together. And when they get there, all sorts of hijinks ensue. But even underneath the hijinks, this movie never quite stops feeling like a film about aging and grief and empty houses and letting go. Or at least that's kind of how it felt to me. But Kenda, I'm curious how it feels to you. Why revisit this film? How does it help us think about theology in the church and the world? Yeah, it's interesting because um, I actually don't view it as a film about aging. Um, guy as the central character, but 
Um, I think part of what is, um, so it's a buoyant movie, um, not just by the balloons, but by um, its themes. You know, he's he is in one of his last chapters, but in many ways, it's a first chapter for him. Right. You know, part of the um, story is about how he um, is, he rediscovers, you know, it, it's, it's in some ways a baptism story, right? You rediscover who you you were made to be in the first place. And the audience is predisposed to know who he's supposed to be because we've met him as a child at the very beginning. And many people have said this, but I agree that, you know, that first 10 minutes of Up, it might be the most brilliant 10 minutes of filmmaking that's been out there in a long time. And every every piece of the human experience minutes. Um, it's interesting. We I was just so privileged this summer to be with a group that met with Pete Doctor. Um, he was talking to our group about... Um, um, storytelling and he directed up and, um, he, you know, he was telling us about some of their process and he said that they got some pushback uh, about including the sadness in those first 10 minutes that set up the context for his and Ellie's relationship. And particularly the scene where it's a little unclear whether she's had a miscarriage or finds out that she can't have kids or exactly what it is. But obviously they got some bad news at a doctor's that caused her to be in tears and caused her to be kind of remote for a little while. And they were, they were given a lot of challenges from producers going, you can't have that in a kid's movie. And when they, but when they tested it with some, they do a a testing process with some audiences um, that are kind of internal to their company. Um, that scene registered so strongly with viewers. Um, and Pete really fought to keep that scene in there. And our group responded to that by, by talking about, first of all, how much the inclusion of the sadness magnified and also, um, allowed them to identify with it much more on a human level. Um, they became much more to these characters as a result of that scene. And anyway, it was just, it was just kind of the, the, the guts to include in the the story, the reality that, you know, human joy um, stands in relief to human pain. And um, so anyway, that's one of the beauties of that movie. movie. So I tend not to think of it as about aging and grief, although that's really part of the story. Um, But the whole, and, and it is about, um, letting go and memories that weigh you down and, um, about how relationships, um, help you rediscover yourself. But, um, as a result, I think of it as a very hopeful movie, um, rather than a sad one. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, Kenda, to talk about like in movies, where does the pain come? And I mean, typically in a, in a screenplay, there's a very particular place where you see that the conflict has reached such a point that the fallout is magnifying the conflict to the point that it needs some resolution, right? It's unsustainable to keep this conflict and this pain uh-huh. going any longer. And that's usually like your, right. your end of act three, beginning of act four. I mean, I, different people who tell you how to write scripts would call this portion the rain or something like that. Um, right. And very right. early in this movie, they show pain and grief over the course of a whole relationship. And so in some ways that like movie within a movie, that life within a life um, comes so early, but it does so much for 
teaching us who Carl is by the time we finally meet him um, as right. an elderly right. gentleman, right? Like we've right. we've taken ten minutes to understand who this character is, and this character is full of pain and grief to some extent, and is trying to figure out mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. what do I do with these memories, and how do I live in this world that seems to no longer make much sense as, you know, buildings are built up around my house, as um, as the young seem to be too bothersome. And um, and that, that pain, I think in some ways, what's so amazing about it is that you see it manifest itself in joy pretty early in the movie when finally the house lifts up with all of the balloons. Yeah. And it's just, it's incredible. Mm -hmm. And yet by the time they get to paradise falls, he wants to land the house and the joy is gone. And he literally has to then tow the house. Like the Mm -hmm. thing that was buoyant and was hopeful and joyful then becomes this massive weight that he has to tow. And Mm -hmm. the ability of the movie to sort of take this central symbol and turn it in a number of different ways and see how it might be a, a, like a joyful thing and also a, a tremendous burden in the life of this one character is part of the great beauty of this film. Yeah. And there's, um, I think there's plenty of allegory that you can draw out of this. Um, but, um, the way that central symbol of hope seems to be at sometimes an albatross at sometimes um, an escape hatch, at sometimes the means to redemption itself, you know? I mean, that that's not, that's not um, the way, you know, the Christian story reads as well, right? It's, sometimes, it's not all um, a story of hope, and it's not all a story, times when, you know, we just sort of lug it with us. Um, but um, it functions in these multitudinous ways as well. Um, I, I, one of the other things about this movie that I really love is it's a great youth ministry movie um, because it's through his relationship with the young person that, you know, both the, um, the child and the adult rediscover um, new levels of themselves that um, are very true to who God made them to be. You know, they, they become better versions of themselves in relationship with each other. Um, so that's another reason I think I'm drawn to it. So what does it mean to use this movie in a youth ministry context? Like, how, what kind of feedback do you get? What kind of, uh, what kind of value do you get out of that? Because I'm really, I'm really intrigued by that. I'm really intrigued by, like, this movie as a way for churches to think about intergenerational ministry. Like, how does that, how does that play out? Well, I mean, I think the biggest thing is simply to um, lift up the transformative power of these intergenerational relationships. Because, you know, they... On the one hand, you know, a relationship that an adult has with a with a young person reminds them of parts of themselves that they've forgotten or not developed or, you know, have dismissed or left behind for various reasons throughout their lives, which is what happened with Carl. And in reverse, with the relationship of a young person with an adult, particularly an older adult, a see what the possibilities are that lie ahead of them in ways that help, helps them to discover um, parts of themselves that the adult can see in them that they themselves have not yet glimpsed. Um, many of us, you know, I have matured with the benefit of having an adult who, who 
us more than we thought was there. And um, so it's that mutuality of both adult and young person find themselves um, really discovering their created um, humanity through each other in a much more fulsome way than if they only hang out with people like them, right? That's probably true of any relationship that is with someone other than us. Um, but it is, you know, really starkly portrayed in those intergenerational relationships that have to do with age. So, um, it's, I think it's just a great way to explain that, you know, in, as, as you've mentioned that there are many ways in which the young person is the shepherd of the older person in this movie. Uh, Russell calls Carl into being who he is fully capable of being. Um, and, and of course, Carl then reclaims his role at the end as being somebody that Russell looks up to. So, so, um, yeah, we call each other out of ourselves in some ways. So it's so interesting to hear you say that, you know, because as I was watching this movie, I was trying to think, okay, who am I relating to in this movie? Because Mm. I'm not, yeah. I'm not in Carl's position, but no longer am I in Russell's position either. Right. And I thought, you know who I relate to is the nameless, faceless developer that's trying to build things, you know, who's like, (laughs) who's trying to like get the old out of the way in order for me to like see my vision enacted in some ways, you know, like who gets annoyed with all of these people who are dragging their heels. And it, it got me thinking just about what, uh, what happens, which is, you know, from time to time, and I'm sure this happens with you, people will invite you to their church and they'll ask you, how do we save the church? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah. like the, the church is obviously have struggling. So tell us how we're going to save it. And there's mm-hmm. part of me that always laughs at this in part because I feel like I need the church to stay uh, much like it is in order for me to earn what I need. You know, like I've got, I got kids. I need to put them through college. Like it, the church can't change too much or I'm going to be out of a job. Um, but right. meanwhile, like we have this generation of people who are retiring and they have more money and more time than any generation in the history of the world. That's true. I mean, like the baby boomer generation has more expendable income than anybody prior to them at their particular age. Simultaneously, we have these other generations after me who have energy and idealism and just loads of potential and opportunity. And I'm trying to think, and I, whenever someone asks me, like, how are we going to save the church? I'm like, I don't know. Like, the, the older generation needs to go talk to the younger generation because together you all actually have everything you need. And as much as it pains me to say this, you need to stop listening to me um, because I'm, I'm not sure that I possess the types of radical ideas that are going to be necessary in order for us to do the things we're going to do. And um, the fact that Carl and Russell themselves together are able to pull out this community, this relationship, and Doug, don't forget the dog. Um, I know, that might be who I identify with. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but at some point, like, <laughs> if I'm, I'm more prone to trying to, like, build something grand and big 
when these other people have actually the the route to salvation and redemption in a way that I don't. I'm interested to hear you talk a little bit about like the the future of the church in the context of this movie because I the church I serve is is literally being surrounded by high rises. I mean it's very easy mm-hmm. for me to look at the first 25 minutes of this movie and see the the um the kind of position of my immediate congregational ministry as like this this old building this old grand beloved building that is literally being surrounded by developments uh and 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 i and and so i think it's uh, there's something beautiful as you all already pointed out about that moment of of elevation of the the balloons just lifting it off of its off of its groundings and and pulling it off of its foundation and allowing it to go sailing somewhere i i am left with this kind of open question of what does it look like for the church to go on an adventure um yeah and, and that's oh, that, 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 that that's that's the question that kind of le- that i'm left with as i watch this movie because of course the the allegory doesn't track all the way through as soon as we get talking dogs and rare animals it kind of right. begins to lose its footing a bit well i mean i think i think that part of it is well. For now, it looks like Carl saving the house, but of course, the house saves Carl, right? So, if the church is the house, uh, and and the church doesn't, you know, theologically, we're not even going to say that the church saves us. We're going to say Christ saves us. So, you know, but part of it is, you know, just trying to, you know, flip the expectation a little bit that it's not just about, you know, what we can do for the church, right? Um, but I also think that there's, um, uh, I don't, I, well, for, first of all, when I look at this movie, the first thing I think of is not how do we save the ch- church, right? Um, but there's something about the way um, the, the surrounding culture, the desire to build um, continually to renew that kind of stuff encroaches upon the house. Of course, we're cheering for the house here rather than for the developer in this movie um but in some ways the idea that it um what the church was is able to do is transcend some of those concerns even when it doesn't last physically if the edifice doesn't um survive modernization or whatever it is the church itself transcends um, the concerns of the day-to-day which cause us to in our anxiety want to create these groups things right and so in, if you're going to find a metaphor there i think the metaphor would be the transcendent metaphor and that there's a there's there's a higher calling a higher adventure i mean the thing that speaks to me most clearly in this um, movie are the the phrases you know adventure is out there and greatest adventure you know ellie's word carl in the scrapbook and the in I think that's lost in a lot of the ways we think about the church, even as we think about what it looks like in the future. I heard somebody um, this past week talk about um, theological education as an adventure of the imagination. And, you know, when he invites people to become part of this cohort that he um, works with, he asked them, he said, you of the imagination and I, that that was a reframing for me and i'm like well shoot that would that of course of course we want that that it's an adventure doing as you know 
everything that Christ did, um, you kind of have to buckle up for. It's not a matter of um, not lurching your way through, you know, the uh, all of these um, contexts. It's very un un. It's very smooth, not smooth. It's very rocky, but it's an adventure. It's there's an unknown, and for Christ to be our greatest adventure, it's not a bad way to think about the um, journey of faith. Anyway, I think that the adventure language is pretty helpful for the church. We seldom think about it that way. We seldom think about faith as being an adventure. We think about it as being a lot of things, but that's not a term that I usually hear. Um, anyway, that that's that's one of the ways I. I tend to think about that with um, the modern the modern improvements encroaching on the edifice. Somehow the church can rise above that in terms of its ultimate purpose, um, being on a venture with God. Well, and in addition, I think, Kenda, too, the, the house is, on the one hand, this vehicle of liberation for Carl, and then becomes like a vehicle of bondage. And mm-hmm. and there's a really interesting commentary here on the sort of freedom necessary in order to have adventures, and then how our liberation in some ways leads to bondage, that then we get liberated from. So that by the end, the house has to get purged too. There's the most yeah. important yeah, yeah. one of the most important parts of the movie is like finally he realizes that his the stuff in this house is not the um, stuff in the house. The memories are weighing you down. And boy, yeah. that is so, you know, we've all been in congregations where that's the truth. Yeah. Um, and you just, you dine so on the past the, and then you keep the steady diet right. of the past as like, and then you realize like, oh, this thing that I had that, um, that was once liberatory and then became bondage is actually liberatory again. The, you know, like it's, uh-huh, exactly. And, and exactly. that's the like yeah. amazing part about, this the the adventure of faith or the or the sort of salvation of Christ or the redemption of Christ is that um, these things kind of come in stages over and over again. The thing that I thought was putting me in bondage is actually the thing that liberates me until it starts putting me in bondage until I get liberated from it again. And and this is a little bit like I think Carl does have this moment of sanctification or these moments of sanctification where right. he is becoming. Okay closer and closer it's it it operates in stages whenever, for him. well i think the the trick is right whenever we we fall in love with our adventure rather than just go go on it um it starts becoming um a form of bondage right um whenever the adventure itself becomes the um thing that we're focused on rather than um the journey that that adventure makes possible um and every time you know as you say when he when he he starts realizing that, wait a minute, it's all this stuff that I've, you know, I've become enamored with. Um, that's not Ellie's memory. That's not what this is about. Um, I, I get rid of that. And uh, But, you know, people in churches have the same kind of um, thing. We fall in love with the church and all of the things it represents, you know, in terms of our own memories and our, our own experiences rather than in terms of what it represents in terms of the journey that we go on with God. One of the things that kind of nagged at me as this movie went along and I'm hoping y'all will uh, will fix it for me is is the degree to which uh, as Carl gets sanctified to use Adam's language here uh, to the degree to which his his body responds I mean so at the beginning of 
well, not the very beginning, but the beginning of kind of older age Carl, we, we, we see him, you know, dearly laboring to get down the stairs in the morning and using his walker very yeah. slowly. And by the end of the film, he is taking flying trapeze jumps off of um, blimps that are several miles in the air. Uh, and and there's there's something wonder yeah. there, there's something super <laughs> joyful about that, right? Like it's it's super joyful that he can do that, but it also it, it feels to me um, a, a little bit like uh, like faith healing, in in a way that uh, felt a little bit uncomfortable. Like if I just have the right frame of mind, this disability will go away. Right? Yeah, yeah, no, there's there's a little bit of that, and I didn't I I that that I struggled with a little bit. Yeah, I I had to. I remember watching it as I was uh, reviewing it for today. I remember um, having exactly two responses to the that uh, to one of those moments um, where he doesn't need his cane anymore. You know, um, one is well, wait a minute. Yeah, you do. Um, and the other was well, the thing is, you know, what he, what they're trying to say here is that this there are um, crutches that we all have, that we rely on, that we don't necessarily need, you know, anymore. And so metaphorically it works, right? Um, sure. If you take it too much, too literally, then it beca- then it doesn't work anymore. And I mean, he does, when he gets in the fight with months and so on, you know, they both are, they both get stuck as they're trying right. to fight each other, yeah. you know? So it's not like they completely, completely dismiss the um, idiosyncrasies of the body as you age. But um, yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying and that it's a matter of, you know, am I just making the decision? How, how literally am I going to take this embodiment theme um, versus am I going to, you know, allow it to function at another level? Yeah. And you could do the same. I mean, you could, you could make a similar critique of Russell and his, and his abilities as they improve. I, I, I think I'm with Kenda mm-hmm. in the sense that um, there is something about our capacities and our confidence in, uh, and just this, I mean, if we're talking about adventure, we, there's, there's some necessary courage. And I think that's what the movie is also trying to get at is that um, in some ways, Carl's desire to lift his house and put it into a South America, put it on top of a South American waterfall sounds courageous, except that he's only doing it for himself. And he seems to want to live out the rest of his days alone. Um, And yet when he has somebody else to live for, he, um, he begins to exhibit some new courage and Mm -hmm. some, and, that manifests itself in some like superhuman skills um, that do strain credibility with regard to the body, and yet I'm I'm still sort of taken with the courage that Russell can solicit from Carl. So moving on, we want to take a moment to tell you all how grateful we are for our partnership with the Christian Century and want to guide your attention to the great work they're doing. I actually think that the most underrated part of the Christian Century is the original poetry that they publish. I've found poems to be an integral part of my own sermon preparation, and I find that some of the freshest ideas and images for my sermons often come from poets and their special insight into the world and how it works. Uh, this week's issue of The Century has poems by Sarah Carson, Benjamin Myers, and Angela Alimo Adano. 
uh, Isha's worth your time, and uh, I encourage you to check out the the good poetry that's that's regularly printed in the magazine. Also, if you're listening and don't yet subscribe to the Century, Technicolor Jesus listeners can get a free trial magazine. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Matt. All right, Adam and Kenda, let's move on to preaching. Let's, this segment is called Preaching to the Choir. So we're going to look at the lectionary passages for this coming Sunday, which is year A, the 25th Sunday of Ordinary Time, November 26th, uh, the Reign of Christ or Christ the King Sunday. So we've got a, a prophecy from Ezekiel, which is about sheep and their shepherds. We've got a couple of psalms of praise. And then what are probably the central kind of reign of Christ texts, which is from the epistle to Ephesians, and it's kind of rhapsodic praise of Christ, and then the famous Matthew 25 passage about sheep and goats and Christ's assurance that service to the least of these is service unto Christ. So, Kenda, or Adam, either one, as you think about up, what resonates for you in these preaching texts for the week? I, I have used this um movie as an illustration in a sermon before, and it was on Ascension Sunday, and the disciples were left looking up, and that was the connection there. So this is a different um, a different angle on it than I've used before. But um, I think one of the things has to do with who we identify with in the movie and who we identify with in the Matthew 25 passage. You know, um, It's easy for us to think that we are either Carl or Ellie or um, Doug or, or you know one of those characters. And in fact, I think one of the things that makes this movie so easy to identify with is that we are all of those characters. Um, they're, you know, it's a cartoon, right? So none of these are, you know, three dimensional, but the fact is we all have, um, a lot of luggage that we're towing behind us. Um, and that seem to be weighing us down. We all have, um, adventures that we have not necessarily seen through that we'd like without realizing that, our greatest adventure is in those um, we love and who love us and would share our lives. Um, you know, we all just deeply just want to be loved and petted, which is, you know, the dog. Anyway, we're all, all of these characters. And one of the things I see in that, in Matthew 25, a lot is trying to parse out who are the sheep and who are the goats. But the truth is we're, we're all sheep and we're all goats, right? So, um, in some ways the, um, the fact that Christ is the shepherd of all of these, all these characters, you know, <laughs> all of these um, people who do and don't um, toe the line, so to speak. Um, that's one of the connections that I see is that um, we're all in this and we don't get to pick which character we play. Yeah, I'm, I'm really taken by uh, this Matthew 25 text as a way of talking about this film because it's... Um, it's it's a it's such a it's an interesting text for Reign of Christ Sunday, where generally in other places we get imagery that really emphasizes it, it really is ascension imagery. I mean, all the Reign of Christ hymns are basically ascension hymns. They're all about Christ being over and above and, and on top point. of. Um, and even in that Ephesians text, it's about Christ being over and above and on top of. And the but the Matthew twenty five text is really about. Christ in our lateral relationships. It's Christ who is here on earth with us in the faces of people that we ignore. Uh, it's Christ around and not mm -hmm. over. And I, I, I'm, I'm curious about that and, and as the way this movie kind of works with that. I mean, the movie is called Up. It's about a guy who lifts his house up with some balloons. But 
at the end of the day, there's a there's an interesting moment at the end when they are they're they're fighting on top of the blimp, and I believe it's mm. the dog <laughs> who's like, I'm tired of being up high, like I'm I, and I I'm ready to go back down. Like they're they're done with being up in mm. the air. They're ready to kind of sink back and realize that the the real epiphany here, so to speak, is in getting out kind of getting out of shells, getting out of themselves, rediscovering the world around them and the relationships around them. Uh, and so like, it seems to me like the, the real escape that Carl makes is not an escape that goes up, it's an escape that goes out. And, I'm, and I, I like that as a way of getting into the kind of paradox of the Matthew 25 text here. So, I'm, well, I'm, and, and, and so let, me, let me further the analogy slightly, which is... Um, there's also an in. So I, as I watched this movie, I couldn't help mm -hmm. but think about this ancient definition of sin, which is the incurvatus in se, the idea that sin is that which bends its in on oneself. Um, Augustine mentions this idea, mm -hmm. and Luther takes it up later. Bart loves it. He talks about it all the time. The idea is that like sin takes the good things of this world and then curves them inward toward the selves. Um, and then everything good becomes in service of the self rather than right. in service of the world. Um, and this is where we meet Carl after the death of his wife. He lives alone. He's well acquainted with pain. He has this relationship that was full of joy and deep meaning. But when his wife dies, the relationship becomes curved in. And this thing that was so good, so holy, becomes the deep source of pain and anger. And so Carl can only think about what they didn't accomplish, the adventure that they didn't take. They never got to Paradise Falls. And the whole movie seems to me to be designed to curve Carl's world outward, away from himself, like back to people and relationships in the future. You know, like, so in, in order to get out, he needs to, like, stop thinking only inward, if that makes sense. <laughs> and this is, this is contrasted with months you know, the villain ostensibly in the movie who is also curved in on himself, his obsession to prove the world that he was right, that there is some beast has deformed his ability to even be in relationship. He, he's the master to these dogs, right? And they call him master right. over and over again. But Doug wants a master, but in the end he gets, gets a friend. You know, it isn't, it isn't this top-down hierarchical relationship. At the end of the, the movie... Carl and Russell and Doug have a level of mutuality that I think reflects Christ's commandment to do this to the least of these, which is to stop being inward and to stop trying to aspire to be above. But like you say, Matt, to, to actually move outward. Yeah. So I feel like this is actually the first time on this show where I feel like there's a decent chance that I'm actually going to preach this movie when I get up to preach on Reign of Christ Sunday. Because of that kind of like, because of that kind of up and out paradox in the text that I think is reflected in the film pretty well. So this this may be a first. I'm not promising, but it could it could happen. Well, it... <laughs> well, <laughs> I the thing that you just said though, Matt, is so. I think that's really key. It's up and out, and it's so. You know, I don't want to just dismiss the 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 transcend transcendent nature. You've got Psalms of Praise this week too. Sure. A psalm of praise is like a biblical balloon, right? A helium balloon raising us, um, lifting us, all of these, that imagery. And the songs of lament, or psalms of lament, you know, go the other direction. 
questions. So it's it's both up and out. It's not one or the other. And in some ways, because we look up, we are free to look out. And you know, if Carl had not, if Carl's house had not, you know, been airlifted, you know, he would have been stuck at a low, at a horizontal level of relationality that was um, just. Not, that was that was curved in on right. himself, sure. and that never allowed him to get beyond it. It's almost as though you have to just kill the analogy, right? <laughs> if you are going, if you're, if you're going to be, you have to get high enough that you can see the bigger picture, right? And then understanding that bigger picture that shifts the way you see the things that are right close to you, around you. After that. And I say that because I think it's it's really tempting, um, especially. I mean, I'm Methodist, right? So I'm mainline us to the to my toes. But you know, we don't we we like to emphasize the horizontal sometimes at the expense of um, the uh, transcendent power of God, and without having you know the um, God's ability to kind of recontextualize things in the bigger picture. You know, we get stuck in these um, horizontal relationships of, well, if we just help each other and if we're just good to each other and et cetera, it'll all be all right. But it's that it's the up that allows us to see each other in a new light and allows us then to go in as well. Anyway, so I like your German title, Up and Out. Adam, any other takes on the lectionary? Yeah, I want to talk about the Ephesians passage just briefly, because I think um, it is such a uh, rhapsody. And, but there's this one phrase um, that was really curious to me, and maybe you all can help me better understand it, because it's been turning around in my head for the last day or so, which is the, the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, that, that these are the things that the— um, that those who have put their faith in Christ will receive the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints. And I couldn't help but hear that in light of this moment of very moving inheritance in Up, where at the end of the movie, Carl takes one of his most treasured possessions, and having no kids of his own, he gives Russell his Ellie badge. And this was a badge that his wife had given them when they met as children. And it's a bottle cap with a um with a safety pin through it uh and and carl says to russell this is the highest um this is the highest honor i can give you in my life um is this badge Mm. and he hands it down um and by the world standards it's nothing it's it's just mostly junk but to carl there's there's like there's no greater honor and russell takes it as such um yeah. And it just makes me think, like, what exactly do we think we're inheriting? Um, because in some ways, as the text says, the saints before us have already re- received it. Um, and in time, we will receive it ourselves. But this is no ordinary inheritance, in, in part because everybody seems to get one. And opposed to the like, other instances of the inheritance or the birthright in Scripture, as the inheritance is given over and over again, so that Christ continues to give this inheritance. And, and therefore, it has a sort of commonness and a ubiquity that might give us the impression that it's not very valuable. But maybe its ordinariness um, is the real inheritance. Um, 
Christ continues to assure us that this inheritance is rich and valuable, even though it's ubiquitous. And also deeply personal, because in that moment, Russell is genuine. He knows he has been truly seen. Mm-hmm. You know, he has truly been. Um, Carl's beholds him in that sense of the word, word, you know, and that gift of being truly seen um, is, I mean, that that in itself is an inheritance, right? So right. I think you should say something so about the shepherd imagery with Russell. Well, yeah, I think the Ezekiel passage has a lot of shepherd imagery, and it's it's a it's a set of shepherd texts that don't get talked about a lot, but I think is are very rich. And as I was watching this movie, Russell seems to be the one who number one loves animals, right? He like he 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 gets Kevin the bird. Right. Better than anybody else. Mm-hmm. And Kevin follows him. And um, and Doug loves Russell as well. But Russell is largely outward oriented. Um, there are moments mm-hmm. in the in the Ezekiel prophecy where it says like the, the the shepherd binds up the wounds of the sheep. And and Kevin literally does that. He he binds up the wounds yeah. of Kevin the bird. I, um, but he also figuratively binds up Russ, uh Carl's wounds. Um, and in the end, he's the one who yeah. seeks to lead Carl. He's utterly unbending mm-hmm. in his care of the world. He has this code, this wilderness code that he is utterly unapologetic about. Um, and his devotion is, I think, a, a pretty good indication of what good shepherding looks like, because ultimately Carl needs to be led. Um, mm-hmm. And it I don't think it's insignificant that it's the child that does it because the child, at yeah. least in this movie is the one that sees the deep value of yep. each creature. He's the one who can recognize, um, that Carl is, um, is willing to sacrifice the bird and Russell himself in order to have things the way they once were. Yeah, that's really well said, but it is unfortunately now time for us to move on from up, and that also means it's time for us to say goodbye to Kenda. Kenda, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us and for inviting us to watch this movie. It's been a real pleasure to talk about it with you. It was a great adventure. <laughs> we'll talk <laughs> Thanks, to you Kenda. later. Okay, bye-bye. All right. So now it is time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's just the chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So Adam, tell me, what's your postlude for the week? So I had the good pleasure of going to the Museum of the Bible yesterday in Washington, D.C., which is a brand new uh, museum, a huge, it's very big. It's right off the mall, it's south of the mall in Washington, D.C. It's a stone's throw away from the, some of the Smithsonian museums and very close to the uh, the Capitol. Uh, and it is five or six floors of a museum committed to the Bible, its story, its history, and its impact uh, in this country and in the world. It is um, largely financed by Steve Green, who is the owner of Hobby Lobby, and yeah. um, which has been in the news for any number of different uh, issues, both political and sort of international, for um, smuggling to some extent uh, antiquities from Iraq, it seems, uh, that 
which have questionable provenance. Um, and so I, I went with a pretty open mind to try and figure out what exactly this place was trying to accomplish. It's a, um, it bills itself as non-sectarian, which um, I'm not sure if it totally accomplishes, but it's a strange place. Um, I went on their media day because I'm writing about it for the century. And I really think I have somewhere in the neighborhood of about 10,000 words in me about this place because it is so odd and, um, and you could write any number of different directions. In some ways, I think it should get its own issue. Um, but I will say this. Um, part of the thing that I kept feeling uh, when I was there was like I was on a Holy Land tour. Hmm. Now, if you like Holy Land tours, if you're into that, and you, um, then you'll probably find the Museum of the Bible pretty fun and interesting, and you'll learn some things. Because there, there really are some amazing... Um, manuscripts, there's lots of history, you can get lost in any number of different uh, corners of the um, of the museum. But if you're like me and you find Holy Land tours super boring and ultimately theologically troubling, then, well, the Museum of the Bible uh, is a little harder. Um, basically, it's a museum for tourists of the Bible. Right. And as I was walking around, I kept thinking, I'm not a tourist. I'm a local. Like, I love the Bible. I've committed my life to its study for the last 20 years. Um, it is part of me. And so part of me thinks that it, nothing could live up to that, um, especially when you're trying to introduce it and all of its multivalence to the world. Um, but in the midst of the Museum of the Bible, I was reminded of this amazing poet, uh, a poem by the Israeli poet Yehuda Amichai, and it's called Tourists, and I want to read it um, because I think the last stanza is especially helpful as I try and make sense of this new museum and try and put thoughts uh, to paper. And so this is a poem called Tourists by Yehuda Amichai. Visits of condolence is all we get from them. They squat at the Holocaust memorial. They put on grave faces at the Wailing Wall and they laugh behind heavy curtains in their hotels. They have their pictures taken together with our famous dead at Rachel's tomb and Herzl's tomb and on the top of Ammunition Hill. They weep over our sweet boys and lust over our tough girls and hang up their underwear to dry quickly in cool blue bathrooms. Once, I sat on the steps by a gate at David's tower. I placed my two heavy baskets at my side. A group of tourists was standing around their guide and I became their target marker. You see that man with the baskets? Just over his head, there's an arch from the Roman period, just right of his head. But he's moving, he's moving. I said to myself, redemption will only come if their guide tells them, you see that arch from the Roman period, it's not important. But next to it, left and down a bit, there sits a man who bought fruit and vegetables for his family. So take a little poem from Yehuda Anichai and go see the Museum of the Bible. And if you do, tell me what you think. Um, I'll be working on this article for a little while. That's what I got today, Matt. What do you think? I love that poem, and I think it, it has a nice resonance with some of what we were talking about with Up, too. I mean, in the sense of, like, you, right. the, the tourist that has the 
the moment of elevation or the moment of epiphany, but who needs to be moved to a moment of outward connection and not just kind of ecstatic connection. Um, yeah. I, I, I think there's some nice resonance. I've got yeah, a, what about you? I've got a poem too. It's Poetry Day on Technicolor Jesus, everybody. So uh, a few years ago, I, I bought this uh, compilation of African poetry at the bookstore at the District 6 Museum in Cape Town. And, uh, and I, I couldn't find it online anywhere, so it has become a prized possession because I have this feeling that I have like one of 10 copies that exist. Um, and every once in a while, I leaf through it and find really amazing things and so, or something new that blows me away. And last week, I was leafing through, and I found this poem by a South African poet named Sethlamo Mutsapi. I have no idea whether I'm pronouncing that right. I have no idea whether he has any sort of faith tradition, but this poem has this kind of really beautiful eschatological imagery and this really beautiful wilderness imagery. And it, it's, it's, it's been sitting with me all week because I used it at a memorial service this week. And, it, and be, precisely because some of those images had, had kind of taken root. Anyway, it's, since it's poetry hour, this is mine. And I, I'll leave it with you. It's called Mudiwa, which means beloved by Stefano Matsapi. We shall meet again at the place where love bleaches noise and fear, where the sun rises out of our dream. We shall meet again under the shade of assurances that sprout between rains, as discolored lions limp out of our hesitations, slumping into fatal silences. I remember everything, words from the house of the beginning, the trees that refused to be desecrated into finite pastures of poetry, the impenetrable simplicities scrawled across the sky, trembling huts weighed down by demons. I remember everything. So I've decided to set out across the great wilderness so we can meet again. Mm, that's lovely. Yeah. So that's what I've got. Uh, that about gets us to the end. One more thanks to Kenda for hanging out with us today. Next episode, Adam, we're going to be talking with Brian Blunt, who is president of Union Presbyterian Seminary in Richmond, Virginia. And we are talking about Michael, which I have not seen in many years, but I'm looking forward to revisiting. Thanks for listening, everybody. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes. If you like it, leave us a rating, leave us a review, tell a friend. If you have ideas for guests, give us a shout out on Facebook or Twitter and let us know who you want to hear from. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and also to Garrett Mostowski, who was helping us out. Our music was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, The Beatles. That's an original one. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt. <laughs>